Richard Dawkins, formerly Oxford University's Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, had today's Bible passage in mind when he wrote about the disciple Thomas in one of his books, in The Selfish Gene. He describes Thomas as, quote, the only really admirable member of the Twelve Apostles. Why? Because, in Richard Dawkins' words, Thomas demanded evidence. The Selfish Gene was written decades ago, but it seems Richard Dawkins has continued to admire Thomas. In 2012, on Twitter, Richard Dawkins said that Thomas should be considered the patron saint of scientists. Patron saint of scientists. But it is essential for us to see right at the start of this sermon that Jesus does not share that kind of admiration for Thomas in this passage. Take a look, please, at the last sentence of verse 27, where Jesus says to Thomas, Do not disbelieve, but believe. That was a very important Bible sentence. It is a comment on Thomas's behavior during the previous week, and it's a rebuke. Thomas has been doing something that Jesus says he should not continue to do. He has been disbelieving instead of believing, and Jesus wants that to change. For the rest of this sermon, we're going to think first about what it means to disbelieve before considering what it means to believe. We need to be very clear in our minds about these things because belief, faith, is how a person takes hold of salvation and eternal life and all the other good things that God promises in the Bible. We reach out and take hold of them through faith. So let's begin with the first half of that sentence at the end of verse 27. Do not disbelieve. Do not disbelieve the words of Jesus. Jesus openly tells Thomas not to continue being disbelieving. So we can look at what Thomas does in this passage and treat that as an example of what it means to disbelieve. I'll read from verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Notice that Thomas doesn't say to the disciples, I will never believe, period. Instead, he sets certain conditions for belief. He says, unless I see this and touch that, I'll never believe. As we'll see later in the sermon, Jesus lovingly fulfills those conditions that Thomas sets. He appears. He invites Thomas to see him and touch him. But the fact that Jesus fulfills those conditions doesn't mean he approves of them. Jesus considers Thomas's behavior setting those see and touch conditions to be a kind of disbelieving. Now, the problem here isn't Thomas demanding evidence. Jesus gives us plenty of evidence so that we will believe. And that's something else we'll get to later in the sermon. 
The problem here is that Thomas is overly demanding. He demands an unnecessarily high standard of evidence before he will believe. Imagine a girl arrives at high school and introduces herself to the athletics coach and says, I'm hoping to join the pole vaulting team. And the coach says, well, that's great. Let's see what you can do. So they go down to the sports field and the coach sets the pole vaulting bar at the current men's world record height, which is 20 feet and three and a quarter inches. I don't think it would fit in this theater. More than three times the girl's height. She boldly has an attempt at clearing the bar and beating the men's world record, but of course she can't get anywhere near the bar. She's just a high school freshman. When she's picked herself up from the landing mat, the coach comes over and says to her, I'm sorry, I'm afraid you haven't demonstrated a gift for the sport. Well, that would be outrageous because the coach had set the bar unnecessarily high. And that is what Thomas does. The level of evidence Thomas demands is so high that Jesus describes his approach as disbelieving. For Thomas, nothing compares with the trustworthiness of his own sight and touch. That's the principle at the heart of his approach, only believing what he can see and touch. And we need to spend some time thinking about that principle. Is it a good standard to set yourself when it comes to faith, only believing what you have personally seen and touched? In reality, there are other ways of receiving truth with confidence. We don't need to see and touch. There are other ways of receiving truth with confidence. Jean Goodwin's memoir, From China Seas to Desert Sands, is a fascinating account of her life as a medical missionary. In the 1960s, she and her husband spent three years living on an island for leprosy patients that was located between Hong Kong and Macau. There was a man on the island named Mr. Wong. Listen to this quote from the book about him. Mr. Wong was a father when he developed the most severe form of leprosy. His family was horrified at the potential social problems. His daughters knew they would never get married if it became known that their father had leprosy. So they confined him to a back room in the house, and as he received no treatment, the disease progressed relentlessly. He became blind. His nose collapsed due to damage by leprosy, and the nerves to his hands were destroyed by leprosy bacteria. He lost all feeling in his hands and severely damaged his fingers, and they became just stumps. At this stage, his family brought him to the local leprosy clinic and he was immediately transferred to the island. He was totally dejected when Stuart admitted him to the ward. Stuart is Jean Goodwin's husband. We could use anti-leprosy drugs to kill the leprosy bacteria in his body, and our devoted Christian Chinese nurses would dress his ulcers. However, we could not reverse his blindness nor his disfigured face and deformed hands. Well, there are two details I hope you picked up from that sad story. Due to his leprosy, 
Mr. Wong became blind and he lost all feeling in his hands. So if Thomas's standard for believing things was the correct standard for human beings, what would that mean for Mr. Wong? Thomas said he would only believe if he could see and touch. Mr. Wong could do neither of those things. By Thomas's standard, Mr. Wong could never again believe anything of importance. That doesn't seem right, does it? It can't be right to say that because he had lost his eyesight and lost his sense of touch, Mr. Wong had no foundation for believing things for the rest of his life. The example of Mr. Wong shows us how misguided Thomas's principle is. Thomas set the bar for believing things too high. Give it some thought and it won't take you long to identify significant things in your life that you believe to be true without seeing or touching the evidence yourself. Unless you were adopted as a child, I'm sure you believe that the man and the woman who claim to be your father and mother truly are your father and mother. If you were using Thomas's guiding principle, you would have to get a DNA test so that you could see the evidence with your own eyes. But that's setting the bar for belief too high. If you asked your parents to take a DNA test, they would need to take one too to prove they are your parents. They'd say, don't be ridiculous. We're not taking a DNA test. And then you'd think, well, why don't they want to take a DNA test? And before you know it, you've entered into full conspiracy theory mode with pictures of your parents pinned to a bulletin board and lots of red string connecting them to dates and places and other people. You don't need to go there. You don't need to go there. More seriously, any country's judicial system would be totally incapa incapacitated by Thomas's standard for believing things. If jury members only believed what they could see with their own eyes or touch with their own fingers, while well, countless hardened criminals would unjustly walk free for lack of that evidence. Thankfully, jury members don't use Thomas's guiding principle. Instead, they hear testimony. They listen to witnesses, eyewitnesses, expert witnesses, character witnesses, and that testimony leads jury members to a well-informed verdict about things they haven't themselves seen or touched. Thomas should have known that. He had Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 in his Bible. It says, a matter must be established, a matter must be established, how? By the testimony of two or three witnesses. Thomas knew that in the sight of God, the testimony of two or three witnesses was enough to establish the truth of a matter. And he had the testimony of more than two or three. He had the testimony of 10 disciples, all of the other 12 disciples appointed by Jesus, apart from him and Judas. Thomas had their testimony, and yet he refused to believe it. According to verse 26, eight days go past. After Thomas first hears his friend's stunning claim about the resurrection of Jesus. So he's had a full week to interview them. What's more, he knows them. They're his closest companions in the world. He knows which of them are jokers 
and which of them would, would never keep on telling a false tale about Jesus appearing to them. Thomas has had a full week to grill them about that resurrection appearance and they're all sticking to the story and yet still he refuses to believe. He's a stubborn holdout. He's like that athletics coach setting the bar too high for the freshman pole vault trialist. Thomas deserves the rebuke he receives from the Lord Jesus. Well, let's press on at this point to the second half of the sermon. We're getting our headings from that sentence at the end of verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe at the end of that sentence could also be translated be believing. And that's our second heading. Be believing. Please look down to verse 26 and uh, I'll read from there. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Just think how much Thomas had to process in those minutes. All of a sudden there's an extra man in the room even though the doors are locked. It's possible that extra man wasn't instantly recognisable as Jesus. On the first Easter Sunday, two disciples walked with Jesus for seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they only recognised him as Jesus when they arrived at their destination and Jesus broke bread. But then this newly arrived man addresses Thomas directly, and if there was any doubt about his identity, what happens next settles the matter. Jesus quotes Thomas's words back to him while showing him his scars. Jesus invites Thomas to do the seeing and touching that Thomas had demanded to do before he would believe. How did Jesus know what Thomas had said? Jesus hadn't been with the disciples. He had been non-appearing since that first appearance to them. And yet he had supernaturally overheard Thomas's words. There's no sign in the passage that Thomas actually goes through with the touching part of his seeing and touching plan. There's no indication that he actually put his hand into the glorified wound in Jesus' side. For Thomas, it seems to have been a case of enough already. In verse 28, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. But Jesus isn't quite ready yet to let Thomas off the hook. What he says next underlines that gentle rebuke at the end of verse 27 that we've already been thinking about. In verse 29, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The point isn't that Thomas is less blessed from that time on, less blessed moving forward than the people who will believe despite not seeing. No, all believers, including Thomas, receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. Instead, the point Jesus is making is that God, in his kindness, will bless people with faith even though they don't see the resurrected Jesus. God, in his kindness, will bless people with faith even though they don't see the resurrected Jesus. That's what happens. Some 20 centuries later with Mr. Wong. 
the leprosy patient on the island between Hong Kong and Macau. Listen to Jean Goodwin again as she tells the story in her memoir. One of the first actions Stuart took, Stuart, her husband, was to invite a pastor to conduct daily ward services in each ward. Space does not allow us to tell of all the wonderful times we had with the patients who were transformed as a result of hearing about Jesus and believing in him. By the time Mr. Wong arrived on our island, the pastor had started ward services. After Mr. Wong had been in the ward about three months, one morning when Stuart came into the ward, Mr. Wong was smiling. He was still blind and terribly disfigured and his family had not visited him. This prompted Stuart to ask him in Cantonese, why are you so happy this morning, Mr. Wong? He replied, I can feel Jesus in my heart. I know he is my savior and he gives me peace and joy. Space does not allow us, Jean Goodwin says, to tell of all the wonderful times we had with the patients who were transformed as a result of hearing about Jesus and believing in him, such as Mr. Wong. Mr. Wong, who could not see and could not touch, heard and believed. Praise God. Praise God for the blessing of faith without sight. If you're listening today and thinking, you know, I don't have that faith. Ask God to give it to you. Plead with him to give you the blessing of faith in Jesus. Pray that he will help you to trust in Jesus, risen from the dead. Well, before we apply this passage to our lives as Christians, it's vital to correct one potential misunderstanding. We need to see that the faith Jesus is talking about here isn't faith without any evidence whatsoever. Sadly, that's how Richard Dawkins understands this Bible passage. He thinks Jesus praises those who believe without evidence. And that's why Richard Dawkins admires Thomas, as we heard at the start, because in his eyes, Thomas is the only one who demands evidence. But that's an unfortunate misunderstanding of the passage. Thomas isn't rebuked because he wanted evidence. He's rebuked because he set the evidence bar too high. In verses 30 and 31, we see that the written record of Jesus' life is provided as evidence so that, so that we will believe without sight. Let's look down, please, to these final two verses. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In those verses, John says, he has given us the written record of Jesus' life so that we will believe. And that written record, setting out the testimony of eyewitnesses, is evidence. The signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, water turned into wine, 5,000 people fed with five barley loaves and two fish, walking on the surface of Lake Galilee, healing a dying boy, 
who was miles away at the time, getting a paralyzed man up on his feet and walking after 38 years of paralysis, giving sight to a man born blind, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. These signs and others showed that Jesus was the promised Christ, the Son of God. John presents us with that written evidence so that we will believe. We don't need to see a resurrection appearance ourselves because we have the reliable testimony recorded in God's word. So let's turn now with that said to application for our lives as believers, starting with believers who struggle to keep believing. Perhaps that's you. You have doubts about the truth of Christianity and those doubts really harm your enjoyment of the Christian life. If that's you, keep the light coming in, the light of God's word, which tells us everything we need to know about Jesus to believe in him. An inch of window light can wake a person up. A single beam from a flashlight can guide a person through a dark maze. Keep the light of God's word coming into your life. Get a little bit of Bible reading into your daily schedule. Make church on Sunday a fixture in your life. Keep the light coming in. In Mark's gospel, a man says to Jesus, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. It's the perfect prayer for a doubting Christian to pray. I do believe, help me with my unbelief. But to make that prayer real, to make it sincere, we need to keep the light coming in. Because it's by the light of God's word, his truth, that we learn all we need to know to believe in Jesus risen from the dead. The next group of Christians I'd like to apply this passage to are Christians who are stable in their faith, but you're downcast because of your circumstances. You're fully persuaded that Jesus was raised from the dead and will return to judge the world, but God seems to be leaving you to stew in difficult circumstances. This passage reminds us that we walk by faith and not by sight. That's a quote from elsewhere in the Bible. We walk by faith and not by sight, but it fits with this passage too. Thomas's seeing and touching standard is sometimes how Christians think about their circumstances. They inwardly demand to see and touch the desired outcomes they want in their life, in their situation. But instead of applying Thomas's standard to our circumstances, we need to trust in God's love because these things are written that we might believe. What is written? God sent his son to suffer for us, taking our sin, receiving the punishment so that we can live with God forever. That is what is written about God's love for us. 
keep the light coming in, the light of God's word. The creator of the universe hasn't turned against you. He still looks lovingly upon you. He gave his son for your sake. That is what the light of God's word says to you. And then there's a, another group of Christians we can apply this passage to. And that is Christians who are in very good heart spiritually. Look again at verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says he writes so that people will live and continue to live. Through the word, through the, word the written word, we have real life, life in all its fullness. And that's because the written word of God stirs up faith in the incarnate word of God, Jesus. I'll say that again, the written word of God stirs up faith in the incarnate word of God, Jesus. It brings us to Jesus, and by bringing us to Jesus, it sustains real life. So if you're in good heart spiritually, keep the light of God's word coming in. By bringing you to Jesus, it will sustain your life in all its fullness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for this written record this testimony that we can believe and so be saved and have life in all its fullness through faith in Jesus. We are grateful for those who wrote this book for us under you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us not to see your word as something dry and disposable. Instead, would we see it as the source of our faith under you? And we pray, Father, that you would bring us to your word so that the light keeps coming in to sustain our faith in your Son, to sustain our life through him. Amen.